The views expressed in our episodes are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Catfish Cops. This is uh, Tony Godwin. And I am Brandon Poor. We're so happy that you could join us today. Uh, it's been a couple weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. We've uh, we've had a few things going on that has sort of uh, put us a couple weeks behind. So our many apologies for that. Well, we felt like the case study webinar just needed to sit for a little bit before we, <laughs> before we joined back in. Plus, Tony's got some bloopers that he wants to play, and, and he's been aching to play those. I kind of stopped him. I thought, no one wants to hear our stupidity. Um, but the more we hear from people, the more we think maybe they do. I think it'll, I think it'll work. And in the worst case scenario, it's like six minutes. So, I mean, it's six minutes of your life. You'll never get back. It's like a bad song on the radio. You just tough through it. So what are we doing right now, Tony? What are we doing this week at the present time? Not uh, where, just what? Well, we can say where. Okay. Uh, Go ahead. All right. Well, we're in some training. We're in another state. We're not in our home state. We're in another state doing some training. Doing some training on forensics, learning all about computers and some some follow-up training to some Apple-specific computer training. Correct. Correct. Um, and just kind of seeing how, the, how that side of things works. Um, and it's been some yeah. fun times. Plus, we've you know gotten some really good food where we're at. That is true. Yeah, last night was uh, pretty phenomenal. We had uh, some Japanese. I introduced Tony to some sushi. Right. And but it was good. It was good. It was it, first of all, it was just a really good restaurant. But the sushi was remarkable. And then we then we got our main course, which was like by the time we got that, we were stuffed. So we didn't that's even dinner eat it. tonight. We just, we asked for a to-go box just to get rid of so we could take, bring it back. But I was so proud. Tony ate sushi, was not complaining. Tony is a finicky eater, if Quite. you don't know this about him. So uh, I try and s- kind of get him to step outside of his comfort zone for food because he's weird. He's he's just picky. So um, if you have restaurant uh, recommendations in Texas, let us know because we're always like, hey, we love to eat. Yeah, but you'll eat in some really. I'll what, just try what Appear to be sketchy places to me. That's why not. I don't go. <laughs> they're not sketchy. They're really good. I think some of the best places in the world are the the places that are off the beaten path. So, who are we shouting out today, Tony? Well, our biggest and uh, our best shout out, uh, obviously, for this week and the last few weeks, uh, probably the last few months, actually, is going to be Texas State Representative Morgan Meyer. Oh, and uh, he's I mean, been he's been great. Yeah, his office has been great to work with. Um, so we have written a couple things that we, um, along with Sonia Ryan, went to Austin. Yep, and just suggested some changes to some of our laws. Um, not not new laws, just some things that strengthen the laws that we laws. have. Yeah. yeah, and he like took it and ran and um, just championed the stuff that we asked for 
um, and just has been working around the clock, I think, to get other people on board. So we've seen some success. So one of the bills passed in the House this yeah. week. The House other, Bill 3111 has then, made it through the House. Yep. And that is a humongous thing. Like, I will be the first to tell you what a what a challenge that was from start to finish. Um, and I know we've talked a little bit we're about We're not even done. It's only halfway through. Yeah, but so, we're way farther along. I mean, from where we started, you know, even in our discussions, we've, we've sort of mentioned this before, but we've, you know, we were having discussions, uh, Brandon and I were having discussions about this three years ago. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, really until Sonia Ryan and the Carly Ryan Foundation came into play, is when we got all the traction we needed. Yeah. And, uh, and, and thank you. Thank we just you, had Morgan great Meyer. partnership with Representative Meyer's office, um, with the AG's office has been helping the, you know, Texas County and District Attorneys Association, a lot of uh, TMPA. Yeah. A lot of great people just collaborating and stepping up, just lending their um, support, their help, their guidance, their advice. Uh, so if you can, if you know anyone that is in the political world and you can say, hey, I support these bills, please do so. They will protect our kids in Texas. They will they will protect kids around the world. Um, one of the changes just maybe seems in, a little insignificant is just a terminology change. We are we are asking to change the term child pornography to child sexual abuse material to change the dynamic around the name of what that is. Yep. Um, and so we've talked about that a lot, um, but we want to now introduce you to our special very guest. special guest. Yes. So yeah. we are joined today um, by a very special person that Tony is going to tell you some things about right now. Yep. So uh, our guest today is comes from being a listener. Imagine that. Um, has been, I guess, uh, jonesing on our podcast a little bit and uh, was part of, I think, one of the... Didn't we do an online thing? Yeah, we'll one of our trainings. Her. Yeah, one of the trainings and then reached out to us. Uh, Angela Brunson is her name. She is the deputy district attorney for Los Angeles County in Los Angeles, California. She's been a prosecutor since 1997. So yeah, she didn't need our training to to like right. her credentials speak for themselves. So um, tell us kind of her, her resume there. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you. So 24 years as a prosecutor, which is just unbelievable especially for where she's at and uh but she, for the last five years she's been prosecuting specifically cyber crimes and so that's what uh put her in the arena with us and uh but i found some fun facts about angela which is almost a little intimidating really but uh, let me just read this uh deputy district attorney cyber crimes divisions which means she prosecutes computer crimes against children such as child pornography and online predators uh, she is a CrossFit guru, a level two trainer, NASM. Clearly, I don't have any knowledge of what that is, nor does Brandon. I was tired just hearing it. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> She's a collegiate fencer, a boxing instructor, uh, started doing CrossFit in 2011, rock climber, International Defensive Pistol Association competitive shooter, the world's toughest mutter competitor, former gymnast, ice hockey goalie for the Lady Kings. Dude. She races motorcycles. She's got a couple of pygmy goats named Chuck <laughs> and Will. And she's completed 47 uh, marathons and a whole bunch of ultra marathons. Holy smokes. So with that, we're going to introduce you to, um, basically, I think the term is badass. Rockstar. Angela Brunson. Welcome, Angela. All right. Well, thanks for joining the show today, guys. That's it. <laughs> I feel like when you do all that research on me, I cannot possibly live up to the expectations you've First set. First of all, college 
collegiate fencer. Tell me about how you got into fencing. We had to take some kind of physical fitness to graduate. (laughs) Wow. That is so awesome though. I mean, like, is it as difficult as it looks? It looks to like horrifically difficult and technical. Yeah. Well, I've always been a chess player and it's got a lot of similarities, you know, thinking ahead of what your opponent might move and how to counteract it or prevent it or defend against it. So um, it's like chess in real life. That's apropos for what we're going to talk about today, because I've often said, and you didn't know this, honestly, but but I've often said like chat cases to me have always been like chess because we're trying to stay a step ahead of our opponent and make sure that we're not doing or saying anything wrong, but trying to also, you know, make sure that they're still, you know, they're not moving on to another target. And so it's always stressful like that as well. Well, I will tell you, Angela, that we, you and I have something in common in so much that you're a rock climber. I'm not, I'm <laughs> he, a rock. I'm not yeah, a rock I was just climber. Say, Tony's more of the rock than the <laughs> However, climber. I did do the Tough Mudder competition in San Diego, California with my wife and my brother, my sister-in-law and a couple of other guys uh, and his wife. And so that kicked have my you, ass Have you so ever bad. seen anyone jump into the mud and the mud level actually <laughs> rise? That's what happened when he did it. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's, there's that, I called it the Jesus tube. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's about, yes. I don't know, 30, 30 feet long or something. I, I swear, I, I thought I was meeting Jesus at the end of that tunnel. I was like, this is it. This is where I'm going to die. how I die. <laughs> it was like a total eclipse when I came out of there. <laughs> that was I, the hardest thing I've ever done she's, in my life. She, you're, you've left her speechless. Good job. Well, kudos I, to you I, for doing impressive. those. The thought of you in that tube, it looked like looking like a cannoli. Hey, there was 20 plus thousand people there. I offended a whole lot more than just Angela. I promise you. <laughs> Uh, But I did do it. What is NASM? Uh, National Association of Sports Medicine. Oh, man. Seriously. Like, yeah, that's impressive. Um, And on top of that, pistol? Like, you're a shooter, too. Yes. I'm a Sig Sauer girl. Wow. You just, you've, like, a a lot of our listeners, the cops in the room are like, yep, she's legit. (laughs) So you've won them over. Good job. That um, is awesome. Well, tell us. Okay, so today is a very special day, right? It's the anniversary. It is of five years of prosecuting ICAC and CSAM type of cases, exactly to the day. Well wow. done, congratulations. That's awesome. Now, were you? Uh, did you volunteer, or were you voluntold that this is what I, you were going to do? I volunteered. You know, I had nice. a previous assignment where I had to put little kids on the stand to talk about what kinds of horrific stuff they endured while saying that to 12 strangers and the bad guy and the attorney and the bailiff, court clerk, court reporter, judge. Anyone else who stops in the the room accidentally? Yep. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to comparing those two assignments side by side. And for me, I would rather, and I don't, I don't want to say this the wrong way. I would prefer to simply um, feel like I'm making the same kind of difference and impact with regard to the lives of children and their safety, but without having to put them on the stand because uh, not having children myself, I really don't have a, a good sense of 
when those memories are going to be permanently cemented in their brain and by putting them on the stand, you know, am I locking this memory in? Am I causing more damage or trauma? But, you know, it's, and it's different for every child, right? Sometimes right. a 12 year old is actually going to walk away from the experience of testifying or giving a victim impact statement and feel more empowered, right? And thrive as a result of this. But once they're under, you know, eight or seven, it's really hard for me to yeah. uh, feel comfortable with subjecting them to being cross-examination, you know, cross-examined. Wow. Right. Well, we both came from um, the background of working cases that were the hands-on cases. Um, so we've, we've been in those environments as well. And, and so what, what do you see as the, we'll just jump right in. What's the difference, I guess, now working these for five years as opposed for the, to oppose, uh, as opposed to those, how, how do they differ? And, and, is it easier now that you're not, I mean, other than having to have a child on the stand is, is there, I feel like these have so much evidence in them. Yes. So I guess that is a pro uh, because it's almost like a, like a money laundering case or a bribery case. You simply follow the money. You follow the digital evidence that leads to our suspects devices. And it's, it's rather straightforward. There's not a lot of trials um, I don't know if it's because defense attorneys don't particularly like their clients enough <laughs> to put up a fight. Um, I really can't speak to that side of the of the counsel table in court. Um, but I think it's because the, the evidence is overwhelming. It is, in a sense, like having DNA evidence in mm. a, a cold case, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, thanks for joining us from the perspective of, of, of being a prosecutor, because this is going to give a whole, you know, other dimension for our listeners to have an understanding of. Um, and so, you know, we're going to barrage you with questions. So I'm just. Yeah, you're you're about <laughs> to feel like us on the stand because kind of punch you are the first attorney <laughs> brave enough <laughs> brave enough no 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 i we've we've got wonderful prosecutors that we work with and that we're friends with um, but you are the first one on here to talk about this kind of stuff and so i think we've had listeners ask questions about you know sentencings and um, kind of the process and the court process so we may we may get in depth a little bit into like what goes on from your side of things um, if we get a chance to but but I didn't know if there's a, a big difference. I mean, sometimes in those hands-on cases, it's sort of the outcry. And then, you know, the, of course, the offender saying, no, it wasn't, you know, I didn't do this. And, but in these cases, like you said, there's a lot of digital evidence, but it almost, it also seems sometimes like even with all of the digital evidence, not much changes as far as outcomes. Um, is that, and, and we're talking in Texas, um, so you're, you're bringing a California perspective, um, and we've gotten to train some people out there. So it's kind of interesting to hear the California perspective as well. Um, are you seeing a lot of these cases come through your system there? Oh yeah. We are drowning in cases. There's two of us, uh, in cyber. I mean, there's like eight of us in cyber, but two of those DAs, two of us do just these cases and we've split the alphabet. So all of the suspects whose last names begin with the letters A through L are mine. And my colleague has 
suspects M through Z. <laughs> and we've always been busy, but obviously when the pandemic hit and everyone was on the computer with yeah. Yeah. too much time on their hands or they knew that children were on the computer and it was essentially harvest time and the pickings were rather easy, we had to very reluctantly send out some of our filings to the other 800 DAs in the county. Wow. Uh, what, what I call the, the, you know how we used to have a, a term, a phrase, see cop, drop rock gun or see <laughs> yeah. cop, drop yeah. rock. Yeah. Well, I called it, look, if it's just a, a suspect with no prior history and it's a see cyber tip, find CSAM, why don't you file it to, you know, with a DA in the jurisdiction where the suspect lives, like the oh, Torrance wow. Courthouse or the Norwalk, right. court, you know, any of the different courthouses in, in our county. And it, it pained me to let my cases go, you know, cases that would have otherwise been mine or my colleagues, but we were both up to over 80 active cases. And those are just the ones awaiting a preliminary hearing or a trial, not to mention all of the progress reports that we had to appear on, the probation violations, the uh, requests for travel, requests to modify their probation, the arraignments. Um, So we were, you know, uh, I mean, they always warn you about this job, particularly with regard to the potential for burnout. And it was, it was fast approaching. So that was sort of the, um, yeah. the thing we had to do in order to keep our sanity. Um, so now I'm currently at, I think 57 active cases. And again, that's just wow. half of the alphabet. And really with regard to suspects that are either law enforcement or teachers, uh, celebrities, uh, judges. How, how far back do those go, Angela? Like, I mean, are we talking like three, four-year-old cases or are these fairly, fairly uh, the current? pretty quick. I'd say I usually reach a disposition within s- six months. Uh, maybe during COVID things got stretched out yeah. a little longer, but usually within a year. There are not that many cases on my caseload wow. now that are older than, you know, late 2019. Wow. So not a backup of like, I know some courts have seen a backlog because they weren't having trials. And so now they're kind of having to try and figure out how to. Well, the trade-off has been, to be honest, you know, there are, there are lighter sentences than I would like to see. And for the most part, everyone is getting probation. And that kind of brings us back to the differences between some of those hands-on prosecutions where, you know, it wasn't uncommon uh, to get triple digits on a, on a state prison sentence, depending wow. on the number of victims. Um, we in California, we are what we call a three strikes case state. So if the child is under 14 and there are hands laid upon that child in a sexual manner, that is a strike. And if that is done on more than one occasion to that child or um, to multiple children, the penalties quickly add up. Oh, wow. um, and then, of course, there's additional penalties for perhaps the transmission of a sexual uh, disease or impregnation. Um, so it's not strikes as in prior convictions for the same or similar offenses. It's, it's strikes related to the counts in the, basically the age of the victim and what, what transpired in that offense. Right. And wow. like a multiple victim allegation will add a minimum of 15 years. Nice. Uh, any kind of sex with force, depending on the age of the victim could be a 25 to life one time offense. What? Wow. Using, using a weapon during, you know, a hands-on of, uh, sexual molestation, or, you know, with a, being armed with a weapon, okay. things like that. You can quickly get into very, um, 
I don't want to say rewarding. I'm, I, you know, I'm right. not the one being personally no, rewarded with a high sentence, but right. the community is <laughs> yeah. being rewarded, right? By main, you know, being uh, kept at a safe distance. No, but yeah, by, that's that's rewarding work to know that someone who was dangerous to society is no longer able to act out upon the children of the community. So that's rewarding in and of itself. Um, what is the, so what's in turn, I guess, what's the, the take on CSAM offenses and, and solicitation. And if, please tell me if, if there's another term for the, um, offense of communicating with someone for the purpose of meeting, if I don't know if it's enticement there, but what are the, what are the penalties and punishments for those looking like in, in, in regards to that kind of offense? Well, unfortunately, everyone who possesses or distributes CSAM, or I call them chatters or travelers, uh, mm-hmm. the ones who are chatting with either a decoy or an undercover posing as a child, or perhaps chatting with a real child, um, and traveling to meet that child, they're all eligible for probation. Okay. And for wow. the most part, that is what they generally get assuming they have no prior sexual history or convictions. So we are urging our teams to bring us anyone who, like I was saying, is a teacher, law enforcement, doctor, or anyone with a prior sexual offense, because those are the ones that kind of, I I feel are perhaps more worthy of my specialty and my attention. Um, Or sometimes, honestly, they are perhaps just simply quite satisfied with the level of customer service I gave them on their first case. So they want to return and come back for more. I actually just wrapped up my first case ever where he was a three time child sexual abuse material collector and distributor. And I had his second case and his first case, his his, second case and his third case. Sorry. His first case was a hands-on offense combined with a CSAM possession, and he did some prison time. Uh, His second case was just, and I say that sarcastically, a distribution. Just distribution. His his argument was, hey, the first time I did this kind of thing, I never got the help I need. I just, you know, did not pass go. I went straight to prison. So I said, fine, we will suspend the maximum I can give you for being a repeat offender And it was six years of prison that was be suspended over you while you did the things you needed to do on probation. And we gave you the help, you know, we're offering you the help that you claim you need. So for his probationary period, he had essentially a cloud, if you will, kind of hanging over his head everywhere he went that would be six years of prison that could rain down upon him Mm. if he did not abide by the terms of probation, which included a minimum of 52 weeks of certified approved sex offender counseling. And it took about eight months uh, for him to show back up on my desk. (laughs) And during the first four months of his probation with that gray cloud hanging over his head, that did not seem to be enough of a deterrent. And perhaps for whatever reasons, he chose not to embrace Mm -hmm. the counseling. And he chose three different platforms, Mm -hmm. social media platforms uh, to distribute a high, very high quantity of CSAM. So it was a third filing, which was also in conjunction with the probation violation motion. And it was a pretty easy disposition because he had no choice but to accept that he was in violation of probation, which is a lower standard of proof. I don't have to prove a violation beyond a, a so uh, that became doubt, a third a, charge against right. him. 
Yeah. So that oh, was a, okay. that was a history making moment yeah. for me great, having a third repeat. And did it go into your file as far as uh, recidivism and the statistic <laughs> about recidivism? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I don't like that word because there's just so many out there that will never know if they yeah, are exactly. being a recidivist because of, you know, becoming more savvy with regards to avenues or methods of distributing that are much more difficult for us to detect. Yeah. And so, so, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, that's one th- thing that our, we've heard from listeners about that very thing about, you know, how, how is it that these offenders are getting probation? Um, and we kind of, you know, we have answers that we have that we give sometimes when we're teaching and things like that. But it would be interesting to hear from someone who's on the prosecutorial side of that, specifically when we teach, um, when we hear people ask that, it's when we're teaching um, and we're talking about, you know, recidivism rates are, are tough to determine um, from our training because of the fact, like you just said, they become more savvy, they become more more surreptitious in the way they do that. So what is the approach to like, you know, should we just expect that CSAM and, and traveler cases should just always be given probation so that there's another chance or what's the take on that from the prosecutor side? Um, I think for most of our first timers who are not actually communicating with a real child uh, or asking a child to produce CSAM. And by the way, one of our strikes that exists in my cyber world it has carried over now um, from the hands-on world uh, that I used to work in, where if if a suspect is communicating with a child, whether he knows the child is under 14 or not, um, if the child is truly under 14, so even if a child says I'm 15 or 16, but the child is, say, 12, when the dif- when the suspect asks that child to touch him or herself, mm-hmm. the law here treats that suspect as if he was in the room. Oh wow! Touching oh, the cool. child, so it's a constructive touching. It's what I call my cyber touching cases. So that is a strike, and that is something that they can go to prison for three years, six years, or eight years. And so, putting those guys off the off the menu for a moment. Um, with regard to your question, let's also not talk about the ones who have prior sexual types of cases, whether they're hands-on or prior convictions for CSAM. So we just have our first-time offender, nothing unusual in their background or history, uh, and perhaps um, not a large quantity of possession or distribution. Maybe only one platform was used. Um, what we try to do is we try to encourage the defense to seek a psychiatric evaluation. And the one that I like best is called a C-port, a child pornography offender risk tool. And it kind of is what it sounds like is we have a person who's alleged to have done something in the world of child sexual abuse or child pornography, and let's figure out what's going on with him. And then this is this report comes to me from a person with a, a lot of initials after their name who has, you know, specialized in this and they've assessed him with this seaport tool. And uh, it ranges on a score from, I think, zero to seven. So assuming it's a low score and they seem like they are remorseful, they're admitting that they did a bad thing um, and they're willing to embrace some opportunities for some counseling or some therapy, which is mandated anyway, if they are convicted, Mm -hmm. then we feel that they're a good candidate for probation. Yeah. And I'm assuming, uh, you know, 
registration comes with that, yes. whether it's lifetime or 10 years post-conviction or whatever, right? Right. As of this year, in January, um, California created a three-tier sex offender registration process. So certain misdemeanors or certain juveniles charged with certain sexual offenses, um, and again, it depends on a score as well because they are assessed. And as long as they meet a minimum or, you know, they're not over a certain score, then they're on a 10-year registration. There's a group of offenses that puts them on a 20-year registration. And then there's lifetime. And for my purposes, my CSAM misdemeanor offenders, if I choose to reduce my ca- my charge to a misdemeanor, they would be in a 10-year registration. And then my uh, felonies, which is the majority of what I work with and the majority of how my cases do end up reaching a disposition, they are lifetime sex offenders. <laughs> and so when you say remorseful, like, so I, it just, it hit something and uh, accord with me because there have been a couple cases where, where colleagues and I have approached a case where it's like, this guy really was remorseful at the time. Or we've seen the, of course, the remorse only comes out in court. (laughs) So remorse that I got caught. (laughs) Yes, exactly. What, what is the remorse? Like, how do you gauge that? Is it with your investigators on scene? Because I know there are statistics that say like that the most honest time we're going to come across the offender is when we are on scene at the first initial search warrant. But, but what's your take on I agree to that to a point. I think the, the first, the most, most honest time is usually when they're face to face, uh, with a psychiatric assessor Ah, who they feel like, okay, I need to explain, you know, I've been binging on methamphetamine and that might not be something they would be willing to say during their second most honest time, which is in the face of sworn personnel wearing badges. Yeah. <laughs> right. They might be willing to admit, you know, I've done some, you know, I've looked at some crazy stuff on a computer and I've sent it to this person or on this platform. But, um, you know, I, that's all, that's all I'm willing to tell right. you. Right. So that's why I think their most honest time might be when they're made to understand we're asking you to speak to, um, a specialist in order to sort of get to perhaps some of the reasons you chose to take this particular left-hand turn on the internet, right? Right. Um, And sometimes that's when they may disclose that perhaps they have been a a victim of some kind of sexual trauma when they were a child. Um, I often get get that as being a disclosure to my law enforcement on scene as well. And I think they do that for one of two reasons. They may be asking or trying to ask for sympathy or understanding. Um, so, Hey, you know, my uncle did something horrific to me when I was nine. And, um, maybe that's why I'm looking at this stuff on the internet. And as long, you know, as long as there's some truth to that, it's not a defense, but I can sort of see why they're saying that. However, what I've noticed is a new disturbing trend where I've started trying to ask and train my team of detectives. Hey, when, when you're confronted by a disclosure like that, by a suspect, Why don't you try following up on that? Because is he telling you this because it happened or is he telling you that he was a victim of something when he was younger because he's trying to get a free pass to surf whatever he wants on the internet? So let's try some follow-up questions like, oh, who was it that, uh, you know, did something inappropriate? How old were you? How old were they? What was their name? Did you make a police report? report, Were charges filed? Did you testify? Right. And then then let's see if they are able to answer those questions because I'm noticing more often than not lately, they're actually not able to answer those questions. And I do think it's because they're thinking that, you know, if you cry, 
enough for yeah. the officer who's about to write you a speeding ticket. Right. Maybe they'll take some sympathy on you and let yeah. you go with a warning, which is not what we ever do. Yeah, because the research exactly. we've seen doesn't back that up. I mean, I think one of our interviews just recently said that more often than not, it was actually um, it was exposure to violence in the homes, but yes. not necessarily sexual abuse in the home right. that we see coming into this realm. But, uh, you know, that's not our expertise. So we don't speak to that as far as saying it is or isn't. But it certainly is interesting. I think it's it's definitely worth exploring because, hey, that's something that maybe we do need to look into and find out, you know, did you make a report? Is there evidence of this? Was this just a and and like you say, it's probably more likely than not just a try and get out of this moment. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I don't think it really meets the true definition of what we call Brady material or exculpatory evidence. But if it turns out there's some legitimacy to it, I do encourage my detective to perhaps try to track down that police report. And that way I can fulfill any chance of um, a Brady exception or right. an exculpatory bit of evidence and yeah. turn that over to the defense. And usually I use it as a, Hey, defense attorney, you know, your client not only is looking at this or sending this type of material on the internet, your client is also disclosing to the detective that this happened. And sure enough, we found this report. So that could serve really as a, a red flag. Yeah. Right. Like maybe this is somebody who might be more prone to perpetuate a cycle. So let me ask, uh, Angela, just for my own clarification, I'm, I'm just curious how it works uh, where you're at. But at what point in these investigations are you brought in? I mean, are do you have, you know, law enforcement that are out there working these cases? Are they calling you, you know, during investigations or is it already sort of done and, and ready to go? Or at, at what point? Because we see a difference here in Texas from... Uh, you know, from uh, the district attorney's side where pretty much, you know, they receive the case that we have uh, put together after an arrest or something along those lines versus the Fed side where they're, I guess, more involved on the front a end. Bit, a little bit more hand-holding during your investigation process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a nice way to say that. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And we do, we get um, guidance from the state as well. But, but yeah, there certainly is more involvement from the on the Fed side from the front front end than, than on the state. I was just curious how it works there in California. Yeah, most of my teams, and when I say teams, keep in mind, this is a really large county. And so we have smaller agencies that are ICAC affiliates, like let's say Baldwin Park Police Department, Monterey Park Police Department. Um, there's different sheriff teams that have turf, so to speak, or jurisdictions throughout LA County, LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, ICAC, and the Sheriff's Department, ICAC. Um, those are my main teams and they're very seasoned, very experienced because they do just like what you do, not just CSAM, but also the hands-on cases as well. So most of the time they just email me the reports and I prep it for filing. And it's just a matter of if it's an in custody, I only have 48 hours to get the paperwork oh. done. So those come okay. up to the top of my list. Whereas if it's uh they've bonded out or they just are filing it for an arrest warrant, meaning um, we're, we want to go back out and arrest him, but maybe not until we finish looking at what's 
in the rest of his devices. So those kind of sit maybe a little lower on my uh, list of things to do. Sure. But, uh, you know, as you could probably tell from the whole gun thing and shooting, and there's a part of me that really likes the idea of helping out and collaborating as much as possible, feeling like I'm out there in the trenches with the, with the team. Yeah. And I've been known to tag along on some search warrants. Um, <laughs> cool. and, you know, it really helps me get to know who my team is instead of just a name on a report. Yeah, I can tell you from our perspective, you know, we've participated in some joint operations with other agencies in our in our area in North Texas. Um, and so it, what to me was very helpful was we had a prosecutor right there on the scene with us, you know, after the scene was cleared and we're inside and doing our thing yep. and, and there she was. And so any questions about anything, um, I thought it was invaluable. And I was, I kept saying to myself, like, why the heck don't we do this more? You know, why aren't we yeah, doing this on and, a regular from basis? From my perspective, I think it's just as valuable because, you know, when you're carrying anywhere between 50 and 80 cases, you probably know this, they start to blend. You can't yeah. always keep certain um, blurred lines, factors, you know, distinct in your mind. But when I, as a prosecutor, have been at the residence and watched the devices coming out. Um, so now I'm reading about them in report and I'm not just thinking some random iPhone. I mean, I remember seeing it had a pink right. and orange cover, right? I've smelled, this is the part that's not always as pleasant, <laughs> but I've smelled the interior. Yep. I've seen these man caves. I mean, oh, I mean, yeah. I don't want to be too crass, but please, sometimes there's don't a lot back. of wadded up socks on the ground underneath <laughs> a certain desk yep. area. And those are the ones that really helps set it apart. And also, also a lot of my team detectives there, they might be, I don't know, maybe a bit too professional in the sense of they don't put everything in a report, like, right. because I'm there seeing it. And then of course I see the report later, like lately yeah. we've, um, you know, sometimes we run into replica parts that are rather yep. small in nature <laughs> yes. that perhaps. The yeah, Tony, Tony had a doll on the evidence yeah. table of his office that he seized from a home that was a, like it was a replica of a child and it yeah. looked very yeah. lifelike and it, it was being used. For, yes. And it had been clearly, it was very apparent that every part of it had been used in the way you would expect without having to say any more than that. Um, yeah. But yeah. do you find that that changes? Um, Cause so I've, I've had this talk with, with prosecutor friends, where it's like, you know, they've they've kind of said on the backside of things like with CSAM, like, oh, I don't want to have to look at the the evidence files unless we're, you know, going to trial and I'm preparing for that. And I'm like, oh, that must be nice yeah. because we get the files sent to us by this in the cyber tip. And then we yeah. have to, like, get ready for the search warrant by, you know, describing the file for the judge. And then we have to talk about the file with the with the suspect. And then we have to like go through their phones and their computers. And it's, and it's great when you find the exact same file on the device, right. you know, to prove the whole full circle. And right. I always feel like, gosh, it would be nice to not have the choice of looking at something until you get to yeah. trial. So, but does that make you feel like you like, does that change how you approach the case? Because you were there and saw, you know, sort of firsthand exactly what was going on there. 
No, I think it just helps me. It really helps me keep it straight in my mind. You know, for instance, my detectives and I, if we say the baby butt case, we all yeah. know which case we're talking right. about. Gotcha. <laughs> Even if we don't remember the case number or the suspect's name, I, you know, I may call a detective and say, hey, the baby butt case is set for prelim on whatever day and right. they can mark their calendars baby butt case. We all know which case that is. I can, again, recall the wallpaper and the carpet and the dirty socks and the smell and the toy that was, you know, not even part of the charges, right? right? And something that they may not have ever even included in the police reports that they're submitting to me, but it's how, you know, things, little things like that are how you sort of keep it straight, right? One of my suspects, when I was tagging along on a warrant, he, his toenails were painted black. I don't know why. <laughs> that stood out, well, huh? Right? Yeah. So I don't know what his real name is. We call him Mr. Blacknail. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So it's little things like that that really do help keep you um, more in sync with what your cases were. Like, and just the, the the connotation of Mr. Blacknail. I know whether it was a distribution or possession case. I remember the platforms used. You know, it's something to sort of hang your hat on. Well, and we and we tell people, we tell vivid. investigators like, hey, take pictures because if it goes to trial, you need to see what this place looked like. And I can only imagine that that helps you as a prosecutor saying like, no, I was there. I, I smelled it. I know what this, this picture looks bad, but the smell was worse. Or, yes. you know, They oh all smell. They, every one of them <laughs> smells. I have such an affinity for a horrible smell. It's terrible. Yep. Tony mm-hmm. gags at search once a lot and then sends me in. And I'm like, thanks a lot for that. Thanks. Oh, and terrible. also as a prosecutor too, I, I encourage my teams, especially on our, our traveler cases to take what I call the people rest photo right? Yeah. Which is usually the suspect with the sign of the hotel in the background and he's handcuffed next to his car and on the trunk or the roof of the car are the condoms and or lubricant wine coolers or whatever yeah. it is he felt the need <laughs> to bring. And that one picture, like I said, is what I call and the people rest, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ladies right. and gentlemen, exhibit A and the people rest, right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm a big fan of, of taking those kinds of pictures or, or videos and as evidence that I can introduce during well, a trial. Things sound very if similar, a, you know. From, if a, yeah, if a picture paints a thousand words, we want those words painted this way. <laughs> That's for sure. What do you think? Uh, can So our listeners have been, I think, just eagerly waiting to hear from the prosecutorial side. So walk us through a, a typical case coming into your office. What is the procedure? Just because I don't think a lot of people uh, um, that listen know, like they know you know, Law & Order, SVU, they know the, yeah. the court TV shows, but what is the, the, just the everyday of it? What does it, what does it look like when a case like this or a CSAM case comes into your office? What do you do on your side? So I get the reports and what we call a filing sheet. And on the filing sheet, the detectives have already filled out the name of the suspect, his date of birth, gender, um, and the report number. And then I read the reports that are just black and white paper. And on top of that stack is a binder clip that contains uh, an envelope with usually three discs. One disc is the audio or usually video of the interview. And that's for the defense. The second disc is the same audio or video of the interview, but that's for my file. And then the third disc 
I encourage them to use red Sharpie all over it and say, contain CSAM, Adam Walsh material, and then the suspect's last name. And that disc, that Adam Walsh material, it usually contains what we call a sampling and not necessarily every single image or every video that came off of every device, but maybe two or three folders. One folder might be marked um, Samsung Galaxy. And then when you open that folder on that disc using your specially issued laptop from ICAC, right. not, you know, your personal devices or your work device that's probably hooked up to Big Brother watching you. <laughs> uh, so that will have the Samsung Galaxy folder may have a, a couple of samples of images or videos from a suspect's phone or, or um, some of the chatting, if it's a chatter or a traveler case. And then there may be another folder that's, you know, says kick and it may contain images or videos or chats or conversations that occurred over kick. And so I keep that disc locked in a cabinet. It does not go into my file. It does not get to get turned over to the defense because what if God forbid, um, you know, I put that disc in my file and then one day I'm leaving the office and I you know, just silly mindedly put the file on the roof of my car and start driving all over Los Angeles County. And now there is, you know, a non-password protected, non-encrypted disc floating around that contains CSAM or evidence right. or identification of a bad guy and what they're up to. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it comes to me or it gets emailed to me, um, by my more experienced team members. And then it, at some point, they will have to autograph the complaint, and so do I. So there is usually a moment of being in the same place at the same time in my office mm -hmm. so that they can hand me the discs if they haven't already, like if they emailed me the reports. Right. Um, and those and are the individual the investigators? that bring that. Those are the individual investigators or detectives that bring that to you? Or is there yeah. like a rep from each agency that has a legal liaison guy that comes around and – Drops no, off. It's, it's the it's the 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 folks that make it happen, and okay. it's yeah. great because when I'm in the office, I really like to you know find out the things that aren't in the reports, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Um, you know, tell me what you didn't write because I know there's always a good story. I mean, I've, yeah. as you know, all of these cases have great stories, right? I mean, I've had uh, defendants fake heart attacks. I've had their mother. <laughs> fake a heart attack or I've had one mother actually have a heart attack. Tony gagging, uh, Tony uh, gagging um, outside of the house, you know, <laughs> and I always like to tell my detectives, Hey, you get a gold scar star if you make him pass out or puke. And we've had pukers, we've had passer outers. So that's always fun. <laughs> what it, so what do you, or when cry. you're looking they get, at they get extra points, if the defendant cries during the interview, <laughs> when you're looking at trial, how are you preparing? You know, how do you, how do you treat this material when you're a, when you're going to have to show a judge or a jury? So in five years, I've only shown images one time and only it was to a judge during a pretrial motion. Um, I am a big believer, and I know this is maybe contrary to some folks out there, but I want, I'm just asking you to keep an open mind and hear me out. Uh, I will never, if I can get around it, I will never show CSAM to a jury. Okay, okay. They're not equipped. They're just not. And it's not a diss on them, but you know, you probably had the same experience. When you came to this assignment, much like I did, I expected we were going to have GoPros hidden in a bedroom where a 19-year-old boy was having sex with his 17-year-old girlfriend. And I was not equipped for infants in diapers. Right. Where an adult male comes in, removes a diaper, sodomizes the child. The child is crying. 
and walks out of the room like, you know, just another day in my kid's bedroom. Um, you know, just the, there's no way that a jury can handle that. And here's the follow up to that. Let's say you do have a juror out of 12 that can handle that one type of image or one video. Well, what if that, what if juror number two is repulsed by it mad and carries that anger out on me for showing it. Whereas juror number three might say, well, that was just one video. Maybe somebody planted it. What else was in his phone? Let's see the rest of the material, which will make jurors number five, six, and seven literally vomit in the courtroom. And then juror number eight might think, gosh, that video was so horrific. Somebody has to pay. He's guilty. And that is not how I play this game. That is not playing it by the rules. It's not about grossing out my jurors so they find him guilty. It's not about making them throw up. And there's another, let me keep going on with one more reason, if you will. Um, Much like the OJ trial, you never put a glove on someone's hand if you don't know whether it fits or not. Now, in an (laughs) ideal world, I will play a video of child sexual abuse material and my defendant will become sexually aroused in view of the jury. However, how do I know that that's what will happen? What if my defendant can make himself pass out or throw up on cue? The jurors are going to say, of course he didn't possess that. He can't even look at it without throwing up or becoming physically nauseous or sure. ill, right? right? You don't know what kind of ex- reaction you're going to get. And lastly, while I'm on my soapbox, <laughs> as you know, every time these images or videos are viewed by anyone, it is a re-victimization of right. that child. Mm-hmm. And I just, why would I want to further victimize that child? No, I, so I, hey, I reality, appreciate Here's how that it plays out. I, I put a detective on the stand and most of the time they're wearing a suit and tie. And I say, did you look at what was in the phone? Did you look at it, the laptop? Tell me what you found. Oh, I found a file called little Vicky, sucky, licky, whatever. And, uh, oh really? Did you watch that video detective? Yes, I did. Will you describe it? Well, it was about five minutes and 27 seconds of a Caucasian female child between the ages of six and seven laying on little mermaid sheets with uh, a My Little Pony stuffed animal. And she was crying as an unknown adult male did X, Y, Z to her. Right. So what is the defense now going to do? No, that's not what you saw, detective. Uh, You know, you haven't met your proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Like, you know, do we need to actually see that child enduring that kind of suffering to prove that it's an image or a video that was found in a device? That's a that's a very good approach. I mean, uh, it it certainly makes a lot of sense. You know, the even the dynamic you have to think about from that perspective of those jurors that you know one little twist, one little tweak, one little thing could just, you know, influence the whole thing. So, well, we say uh, often it, it is the most evil thing on the face of this planet. The C that CSAM files are. And so I certainly appreciate that, you know, not, not exposing more people to it, not taking a chance and not, not giving the opportunity for someone to, you know, the defendant to act like, this is repulsive when they've been doing whatever to it. Um, so I, you know, we don't get that decision. Um, that's up to the prosecutor and I certainly, but can I I ask a flip side question in regards to say somebody's going to take a guilty plea and go open before the judge for sentencing. I'm assuming that's something that happens there. Correct. Yes. Yes. So in those instances, what's your opinion or thoughts of obviously you as the prosecutor have probably 
you know, seen this material, but what about the judges? Are you seeing anything consistent where the judges are seeing this material and getting an understanding of the gravity of what it is or no? Well, much like what is usually contained in a report, like a few descriptions out of, you know, out of the 253 videos I found on the defendant's phone, the detective will write, uh, I viewed three of them and would describe them as follows. And it was similar to what I just sort of said, uh, you know, three minute long video containing X, Y, Z. So I will often copy and paste in a sense, those descriptions in a sentencing brief that I submit to the court and to the defense. And in that brief, I'll say, Your Honor, this is a person who has, you know, zero record or all of these other prior things on his history. And in addition, you know, we're here today because he has pled guilty and admitted that he, you know, contained the following types of videos. And this is just a description of three out of the 200 that were on his phone. Um, so, and keep in mind too, I, I have an ethical duty as, as part of my discovery obligation to allow the defense attorney or the public defender to come to my office and view the material from that disc that I keep locked in a cabinet. So most of the time, these trials, when they do go to trial, which is rare, it's not about whether it's child sexual abuse material. Is that child 15? Is that child 19? I don't know. Because we really, I don't even see those cases coming to me. Yeah, I don't we, even get those don't calls those. anymore. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I used to get calls, you know, pre- pretty frequently when I first started, like, hey, this is such and such police detective. And we've got a guy, you know, computer repairman is looking over somebody's computer for repair. And uh, we see something that's not necessarily appropriate. And do you think these are children or not? And it's sometimes it's a hard Yes, but yeah. for the most part, everybody that comes across my desk, and I'm telling you, I get about mm, 20 of these a month, there's no doubt that it's a child. Right. So I always have to tell the defense, hey, if you ever need to see and verify that it's a child, you've already read the report, which contains descriptions. And if you think my de- detective is not equipped to age range Determine, appropriately, yeah. right? If he's saying six to eight and you want to make sure that this is not a 19-year-old whatever, feel free, come on over, look at that. And I have had defense attorneys throw up in my trash can in my office. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not about whether it's a child or not. A lot of times these, when they do go to trial, it's either in my experience because they do not want to be deported. And that's a risk that they have in, in, at least in this country, um, as far as immigration concerns, or there's maybe some claim that, uh, I don't know how that got there. Uh, someone sent it to me. And, you know, so forensically, they want to make sure that it's located in a place that, you know, either supports their defendants or their clients claims or it disproves them and they know their client is being dishonest. Right. Wow. That's a good place for us to stop with throwing up in a trash can. Um, I don't want to cut us off there. We are going to continue exactly where we are leaving off next week. But we're out of time for this week. So thank you for tuning in. And we will be back with Angela next week. 